These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God. And Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Japheth. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you're to make it. The length of the ark, 300 cubits, its breadth, 50 cubits, and its height, 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark in its side. Make it with lower, second, and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on the earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female. Of the birds according to their kinds, and of animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing of the ground according to its kinds, two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also take with you every sort of food that is eaten and store it up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this. He did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, brother. So today we're tackling the entire Noah narrative. We just read the very first section because we'd be uh, reading for a very long time if we did the entire Noah narrative. It goes through the second half of chapter 6 all the way until we get to chapter 10. So we're doing several different chapters today. And it's a story that I feel like we can do that with because it's so familiar. I mean, we all know the story. Our nursery has a ark painted on it with a rainbow. And we have been hearing this story, whether we've grown up in the church or not, most of us have grown up with this story in one shape or another. And the story of Noah, it feels like a children's story to us. When we listen to it, it's, oh, isn't that cute? They have animals. So cute. It's like a zoo. But friends, this story is not for children. It's like mass destruction and death um, in this story. I mean, it is for children, but it's not just for children. It's very interesting. It's been masterfully crafted. And also, there's parts of this story that weren't taught to me in Sunday school. Uh, We're going to get to this as we go later on. But They don't really talk about what Noah did once he got off the ark in Sunday school. I mean, the dude had a five-year plan to show up on drunk, uh, dumb people doing drunk things there. Drunk people doing things. There we go. He, He, like, planted a vineyard, grew grapes, fermented his wine, and then ended up naked on his tent floor. This is Noah, the one that got off the ark there. And so there's a lot to uncover in this passage, and we're going to be going through it all. But friends, I want to uh, just recap what's happening, and then what we'll do is we'll talk about just a couple of the ways that this thing has been masterfully crafted, because I just think it's such a good story, and we miss out on it if we don't read the whole thing. And so I just want to point out a few of the really intentional um, things that the author did in this story to help us to understand it better. And then we're going to talk about some of your objections, like 
hey, did this really happen? I know some of you are like, did that really happen? Worldwide flood, did that really happen? And, and if it did happen, how could God do that? Like kill everything and everyone? How, how could a loving God do that sort of thing? So we're going to be talking about all of that as we go through this passage. Let me just recap it very briefly for us. God saw that the earth was full of violence. He saw that the earth was full of destruction and sin. And God felt a feeling. And the feeling that he felt was grief. He looked at his world that he had created and that he loved. And he grieved And he felt regret. And so he basically decided to start over. And the path that he took to starting over was essentially decreating the world and then recreating it again. And I'll talk about that more in just a few minutes, what I mean by that. But instead of destroying everyone, there's one man who found favor in the eyes of the Lord. Now this word favor, this is the first time that it appears in the entire scripture. And it could also be translated grace. It does not mean that Noah was a perfect man, but it does mean that the Lord found favor with Noah. So God tells him what he's going to do. He tells Noah uh, that he's going to flood the world and kill everybody and start over, and he's going to start over with him and his family. And so for Noah to survive this flood, he needs to build a massive ark, a massive ship, the reading of this doesn't do it justice in, in our minds and in our, in our, the way that we think about this. I did not realize that to this day, this ark is still the largest wooden ship that's ever been crafted. I mean, just a massive wooden ship. It's 450 feet long. There was one other wooden ship that was built that was 450 feet long, but it did not have the same volume as Noah's ship did. That is the length of one and a half football fields, just to get your mind around how large that is. There are a lot of metal boats and reinforced boats that are larger than that, but this is the largest all-wooden boat of all time. And God tells him all of these very specific details. The, the total cubic volume of Noah's ark would have been 1,518,000 cubic feet. And that's the equivalent of 250 single-deck railroad stock cars. I mean, you're just talking about a massive ship here. Since the average stock car can carry 80, 180-pound sheep, or two, I'm just going to explain like how many, how many animal can, animals could fit on this ark. It could carry eight, an average stock car could carry 80, 180-pound sheep, or 160, 50-pound sheep per deck, it's estimated that the ark could carry 20,000 to 40,000 sheep-sized animals. I mean, this thing is huge. And then what God does is he gives him a long time to prepare the ark, and then he tells Noah and his family, his, his seven family members, eight in total, to get on the boat along with animals, lots and lots of animals. And then what does it do? It starts to rain, right? Um, there, I remember the children's song. This is why it's a children's song to us. This is why we think about this story as being a children's song. But the Lord said to Noah, there's going to be a floody, floody. You guys know that one? <laughs> so get those animals out of the muddy, muddy children of the Lord. Um, and that's the only time and last time I'll sing into the microphone here. Um, so it started raining until the whole world was flooded and everything was dead. But then God remembered Noah and the animals in his creation. And it stopped raining, and the flood subsided. 
and Noah reestablished society. And so it's easy for us to kind of lose concept of how long they had been on the ark with this whole thing, but the entire total time that they had been on the ark from the time it started that he told them to get on the ark until they got off was 370 days. He was on that ark for an entire year plus five. It's an amazing amount of time, and it's an amazing story. And what I want to show you before we dive more into some of your objections with this story is just how masterfully crafted this story was. On the back of your uh, sign-up to serve, serve sheet, if you grabbed one of those on your way in, you will see what, um, what the author, what uh, many commentators call a chiastic parallelism, all right? That we're in Somerville, Massachusetts, you can hang with what's happening right here. Uh, you do very um, interesting things, all of you. And so you're a smart bunch. You can hang with what we're talking about. Um, the, the author, basically, the way he crafted the story is it functions like a pyramid. And he put something at the beginning of the story and then the same thing at the very end of the story. And so you see that at the very beginning of the story, God calls Noah. And you see at the very end of the story, God calls it ends with Noah. He, they talk about his children in the beginning, ends with his children. And you see how it just kind of bounces back and forth. And there's this parallelism that we're supposed to see as we go through this passage that it is, um, the, the passage has a climax. And the climax is found in chapter 8, verse 1, when it says, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. The story is more, than a, more sophisticated than a nursery rhyme. It's so well constructed. You might not see that when you're reading it, but now that someone's pointed it out to you, I'm sure you'll see it more easily. And the second thing that you need to see with how well this story's been constructed is it's meant to be constructed to be a parallel to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 starts with a verse, In the beginning God made the heavens and the earth. The earth was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. And this is what we're supposed to have in mind as Noah is floating on, in his ark and the world is completely flooded. That the, that the face of the earth was without form and void and darkness was over the face of the, the deep. And then we see what happens is God brings out recreation. So if you look at chapter 8, verse 1, it says, God made a wind blow over the earth and the water subsided. Now, if you remember from the first week we were in Genesis, the Hebrew word for wind is the same word that we have for spirit. Pneum, uh, no, that's uh, Greek. It's um, ruach. Um, spirit and breath and wind, same word that we see over and over again. Here. And so he's recreating Genesis chapter 1. God made a wind blow over the earth, just like the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. 8-2, the fountains of the deep were closed and the rain from the heavens were restrained. This is like God saying, let there be an expanse in the midst of the waters and let it separate the waters from the waters. This is a very parallel story. Chapter 8, verse 5, the mountain peaks appeared. To Noah. This reminds us of Genesis chapter 1 when God said, let the waters under the heavens be gathered together in one place and let the dry land appear. And so you see God is recreating the world as he did in the beginning. And then in chapter 9, Noah gets off of the boat and God sets up Noah to be like the new Adam. The first thing God says to Noah after he gets off 
chapter 9, verse 1, as he's, God blessed Noah and his sons and said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. Well, where have we heard that before? But Genesis 1, he's just saying it again. He's just saying the same thing that he said to Adam. He's saying, be fruitful, increase, and multiply on the earth. Noah is depicted as a new Adam. Both Noah and Adam, they walk with God. Both Noah and Adam, they're charged to be fruitful and multiply. Both Noah and Adam are given charge of the animals to to subdue them, to take care of them, to care for the earth. And then both Noah and Adam fall into sin in a garden, as we will see. So as we go through all of that, I just wanted to point out some of the beautiful nature of this ancient literature, because we don't always pick it up when we're reading it through by ourselves. But I know when you read that, some of you have questions like, could this really have happened? And that's a a fair objection. It's one that we can go more into during the Q&A session. But I will just handle a little bit of that now. Did God really flood the entire earth and kill every living thing? Well, let's see what the passage says first. Genesis 7, verse 19. Let's see how the author says this. Genesis 7, verse 19 through 22. And the waters prevailed so mightily on the earth that all the high mountains under the whole heaven were covered. The waters prevailed over the, above the mountains, covering them 15 cubits deep. And all flesh died that moved on the earth. Birds, livestock, beasts, all swarming creatures that swarmed the earth and all mankind. Everything on the dry land in whose nostrils was the breath of life died. That sounds pretty unequivocal, that this is a flood that covered the entire earth. And as we look at this, I want us to just remember this point that we read this thing with 21st century goggles on. And so we can only see it from our perspective, because that's the only perspective that we have. But I want you to take a moment to put yourself in an ancient person's mindset. And what did earth mean to an ancient person? We've talked about this already. If you Close your eyes and imagine what I say when I say earth, what comes to your mind? But a spinning globe out in space, right, with continents and water on it. But to an ancient person, if you say earth, they don't have any idea that the world is even round. They're not thinking of space. What they're thinking of is the land, the world, all that I can see, all that I know. And so to an ancient person, when you say all the earth, it does not mean the exact same thing that it means to us. And we get this intuitively. There are other passages that even are found here in Genesis that we don't take 100% literal the way that we might with this one. Such as in Genesis chapter 42, Joseph, uh, we'll get to Joseph, I don't know, in like May or something. But um, Joseph is... uh, the representative for Pharaoh, and he's interpreted Pharaoh's dream, and he knows that seven years of famine are coming. And so they've had seven years of plenty, so they've stored up their, their crops, and now they have seven years of famine. And, but he's prepared well. And what the text actually says after this happened, what we know is that people came to, to Egypt to get food. But Genesis 41, 57 says, Moreover, all the earth came to Egypt to, buy, to, to Joseph to buy grain, 
because the famine was severe over all the earth. Now, does that mean that every person on the planet got on their camels and went to Egypt? I don't think so. And I think we get that intuitively. We understand what they're saying is that every nation that we know of in our world made their way to Egypt. And so when we come to this Noah story, I think that we kind of have two different choices. They're both fine. Um, One, the text says that it covered everything. That is total. if you believe that, like I'm totally for you and I'm with you and I'm I might believe that. I'm not sure. Um, I'm not a scientist, so I just kind of like take it for what it says. I've never had this question. I've never wondered, but I know that some of you do. But maybe that's really hard for you. And, but I think that you can be biblically faithful and believe that this was just a massive, massive, massive regional flood. I mean, more than regional. Like, it's, it's not like Somerville flood, okay? This is like huge flood. And when you look at ancient societies, many of these ancient societies in this area have flood narratives that they tell. It's, it's part of kind of a, a, a collective memory for people. And so I think it makes a lot of sense for you to think about this flood is not allegorical, according to the Bible, not allegorical whatsoever. It was a real flood. But how large it was, if it covered all the, uh, you know, were polar bears on the ark and stuff like that, people aren't asking those questions. This, this passage is not here to teach us about paleontology and meteorology. It's not here to, to do what we often want it to do. A faithful reading of this passage is not allegorical or symbolic. There was a really large flood, one that to an ancient person covered the entire world. And so how, when you think about that, and thinking that we really believe this, we have the question of, how could a good God do this? How could he just wipe out everyone? You know, there have been a few people over the past couple of centuries who have decided that they want to wipe out, like, everyone or everyone of a certain race or ethnicity. And we have a word for those people. It's tyrant or psycho, crazy person megalomaniac. We have a lot of words for those people, and they're all negative. This is what we call genocide, to kill all of a person, all of a people group. To look at a group of people and decide, I'm going to kill them all. That's not typically behavior that we celebrate, yet that's what God does. He looks at a group of people, and he made that group of people And he sees that every intention of their heart is evil all the time. And he grieves and he mourns. And he says, I need to start over. Friends, if you have a hard time believing in a God of judgment, you're going to have a lot of hard times dealing with injustice in this world. Because a God of judgment is required if you want to have true justice. If you want to understand true justice justice. We may not like the Bible's teaching on judgment. We might prefer its teaching that says, turn the other cheek, love your enemies, practice nonviolence, that sort of thing. But friends, I love the way that Miroslav Volf puts this. He's a professor at Yale of philosophy and religion. And he says, you can't have it both ways. He says, you can't have it both ways. You can't love the God who says, love your enemies 
but hate the idea that there's a divine retribution and a divine judgment that's coming. You cannot have it both ways because only when you believe in a divine judgment can you truly love your enemies. So Miroslav Volf, he grew up in uh, the Balkans, which is a war-torn area of the, of the world, and he is now here. But here's what he said. He said, my thesis that the practice of nonviolence requires a belief in divine vengeance will be unpopular in the United States. But it takes the quiet of a suburban home for the birth of the thesis that human nonviolence corresponds to God's refusal to judge. So what's he saying? He's saying, if you live in a country, if you live in a place where your house has been burned down, where your family members have been raped and killed, without a belief in divine judgment, you're going to be violent. That's your only choice. You're going to pick up the sword. You have to get your vengeance because you don't believe that anyone will do it for you. Unless you believe in a God of divine judgment, then you, cannot, then you can say, you might be getting away with it now, but you won't get away with it forever. This is what allows us to love our enemy. What Miroslav Volf is saying is that if you don't believe in a God of divine judgment, you end up like Lamech. You guys remember Lamech? What did Lamech say? Lamech said, God's vengeance is not enough. If Cain's vengeance was seven times, my vengeance will be 77 times. So what does Lamech do? He becomes the tyrant because he doesn't believe that God's judgment and God's justice is enough. He doesn't believe in a God of judgment and justice. He says, I need to take this in my own hands, and so I will kill a man for wounding me. I will take vengeance into my own hands. But a, a belief in divine judgment, believing that God is in charge and that he will get right one day, no matter who it is and what they did, but they will get what's coming to them, that is essential for loving your enemies. Because then you can say, I can forgive that person because they're going to get what's coming to them. Or Christ did on their behalf as Christians. It allows us to love our enemies. It is the only thing that allows us to love our enemies. Becky Pepper puts it like this. She says, anger is not the opposite of love. Hate is. And the final form of hate is indifference. God's wrath isn't a cranky explosion but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. Hear that again. God's wrath is not a cranky explosion, but his settled opposition to the cancer, which is eating out the insides of the human race he loves with his whole being. And that's what we see in this passage. What drives God to perform this deed of divine judgment. What drives him? What's his motivating force? Human violence. Human violence. I want you to see something in chapter 6. This is part of the, the chapter that we read earlier. Um, very beginning of, of what we were looking at earlier. Chapter 6, verse 11. I'm going to read this. But as I read this, I'm going to point out one thing. The word in here for corrupt and destroy is the same word in Hebrew. So every time you see the word corrupt or destroy, know that that's the same word. Those are equivalent, just equal to one another. 
Let's read it with new eyes. Verse 11. Now the earth was corrupt in God's sight, and the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with the earth. And so what's God saying? He's saying, humans are destroying the earth. They're destroying one another. And so I will destroy them before they finish the job. He's saying, I'm destroying the destroyers. God is not exploding in anger. He sees his good creation being destroyed and he's grieved. He's saddened. He has to do something about it. We might think, and we might feel like this church, we might think that the Bible portrays God, especially in the Old Testament, as an angry tyrant. But when you read the Old Testament with careful eyes, you see that God is never portrayed as an angry tyrant. Satan would want you to believe that, that God is ready to pour out his wrath and anger at any small misstep. But theologians for a long time have called God's judgment or God's justice, his strange work and mercy to be his natural work. God's judgment is his strange work and mercy is his natural work. Our God delights to give justice. He is a, delights to give mercy. He is a just God who will get the judgment for every misdeed that's been done, but he delights to give mercy. This is the joy of his heart. Hear how Dane Ortland puts it and gentle and lowly. This is beautiful. If you don't have a copy of this book, I have several. I'll, I'll give you one before you leave today. God is unswervingly just. But what is his disposition? What is he on the edge of his seat, eager to do? If you catch me off guard, what will, what will leap out of me before I have time to regain composure will likely be grouchiness. If you catch God off guard, what leaps out most freely is blessing, the impulse to do good, the desire to swallow us up in joy. God is unswervingly just, but abundant in mercy. And that's what we find at the heart of the Noah narrative. That though God is having his way, that God is unswervingly just at the very middle of the story. Do you remember what's at the middle of the story? What is the author trying to communicate? What is the most important line in this entire passage? But it's at the top of the pyramid of the chiastic parallelism that we find here in Genesis. But it's this one phrase, Genesis chapter 8, verse 1, God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. This, ver- this passage, this, this phrase, God remembered, it pops up a few times in the Bible. It pops up a few times in, in Genesis. When uh, Abram is sent to, sit, to rescue, when, when Abram's nephew Lot is rescued from Sodom and Gomorrah, what does the Bible say? But it says, God remembered Abram. When Rachel was mourning because she had, could not conceive, the passage says, God remembered Rachel, and so she conceived Joseph. This phrase, God remembered, shows that God doesn't give up on his promises, but he moves toward those who he loves. What makes us feel more loved than being remembered? 
we got back from vacation a couple of weeks ago, and uh, my wife and I walk in the door, and what's the first thing out of my kids' mouths? What did you get me? What did you get me? And why is that the first thing that came out of their mouths? It's because to them, they're asking, what's, what's the question behind the question? Did you remember me? Dad, Mom, did you remember me? What did you get me? And of course we got them something. We got them little souvenirs, which is actually a French word that means to remember. We got them things. But to remember someone is to love them. And God loved Noah, and he remembered Noah. Not because of what Noah had done, but because God just found favor in him. Noah had faith, Hebrews 11 teaches us. And so God had favor with him. It wasn't because he was righteous, as we'll see in just a moment. God wiped out all the living things on the earth. And he told Noah to get on the ark and to get the animals on the ark. But do you know what else went on the ark? Sin went on the ark with them. It followed them. He did not get rid of it completely. When the waters finally receded, Noah gets off the ark, and what does he do? Makes some wine, gross grapes first, makes some wine. This is a multi-year plan that he has here, five-year plan to get drunk, and uh, ferments the grapes, drinks himself into a complete stupor, strips himself naked, and passes out on his tent floor. This man has planted a vineyard and made wine before he's able to make himself a proper home. He's still sleeping in a tent. That's where his priorities were there. Just as Adam sinned in a garden, Noah sins in a garden. It's really astounding. Noah lived a righteous life. God told him to build this mega ark, to do it probably at the ridicule of everyone around him, to spend his time and resources building this boat, He's faithful all along as people are watching him carefully. What is Noah doing? He probably has hired help. Who knows what's going on here? People know what Noah's doing, and he's faithful. But then when no one is around but his own family, he ends up naked and drunk on the floor of his tent, which I think it causes us to ask self-inquisitive questions like, who am I when no one else is around? When it's just me and my family or me and my apartment, does my behavior change? Am I the same person all of the time when no one is watching? Am I the kind, considerate person that my coworkers or church friends see? Or am I irritable, angry, quick-tempered, slanderous, lazy, gossip-filled, selfish person? When the eyes of the world are turned. You see that Noah, he's really just like us. When no one's watching, he's on his worst behavior. And we're reminded in this passage that the Bible is not a collection of stories about heroes. It's not. It's not a story that's a collection of stories about heroes to emulate. But the Bible is the story of God and his persistent love in spite of of our constant rebellion and our constant selfishness. This is the story of the scripture. This is the message of the gospel that all of us have sinned against God and deserve to be swept away in the flood of destruction. 
But Christ took on the flood of God's wrath on our behalf, church. He was overwhelmed by the wrath that you and I deserve. He bore the divine justice, though he did not deserve it. And God, being rich in mercy because of the love with which he loved us, has made us alive in Christ. We avoid the flood because we're on the ark that we call Jesus. It's not because we're righteous. It's because we're in the right boat that we can pass through the floodwaters. Jesus himself warned of the coming judgment of God. And this is not fun to preach, but I think you have to when you talk about Noah. Jesus said, the day is coming when the world will be judged. Each one of us, we will be exposed. Our innermost desires will be exposed. And God will see us as we are, and he will judge the world. But right now he's being patient toward us, not wanting any to perish. I love this passage, 2 Peter. It says, the Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise, as some count slowness. You might think that God is being slow with you today, but he's not. He is patient toward you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. This is God's heart. This is his natural work. His strange work is the justice. He wants us all to reach repentance, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done in it will be exposed. And on that day, your hope can only be found in Christ, dressed in his righteousness alone. That is your only hope to make it through the flood that is coming for everyone. Jesus is the ark, and the call of the gospel is an opportunity to be faultless, standing before his throne. Invitation into the ark of God that Jesus got the justice that we deserve. He withstands the flood so that I don't have to. Jesus puts it like this. He says, I am the door. If anyone enters by me, he will be saved and will go in and find and out and find pasture. You see, after Noah got off the ark, God established a covenant with him. And that covenant was a promise to never flood the earth in the same way. He said it like this, Never again shall all flesh be cut off by the waters of the flood. And never again shall there be a flood to destroy the world. And, the, and then God gave a sign of the covenant. And it's actually kind of cute the way he says it. He says, I will put my bow in the sky. He doesn't say rainbow. He just says, that's my bow that I'm going to put in the clouds. So that when we see the rainbow, we might be reminded of God's love and deliverance. When we see that bow, we can be reminded of the gospel. No matter what comes to your mind, when you see a rainbow, think of the gospel. This is the good news of the gospel. No one puts it better than Sally Lloyd-Jones in the Jesus Storybook Bible, intended for children, but brings a tear to my eyes every time. And this is how she puts it. She says, God's anger against hate and sadness and death would come down once more but not on his people. No, God's war bow was not pointing down at earth, but it was pointing up into the heart of heaven. God himself would take the wrath. God himself would be overwhelmed by the flood so that we wouldn't have to. You see, the story of Noah isn't a story of a hero to emulate, but it's a story that points us forward toward Jesus, 
Like Adam and Noah before him, Jesus also is found in a garden at the end of his ministry, at the end of his life. Though Adam and Noah, they failed in the garden, they failed to, they, they failed to sin, Jesus pleads with the Father and says, may this cup pass from me, sweating, sweating blood in that moment. He says, Father, may this cup pass from me, wanting nothing more than to be out of this situation. But he stands firm. His faith is not shaken in the garden, and he remains faithful. Jesus does what Adam and Noah cannot. He remains faithful until the end of the story. Many of you are here today, and you feel completely forgotten by God. Like, I've been in this flood for a long time, and God is not remembering me. And I want to give you a word of comfort that those who are in Christ are never forgotten. Though you do not see him always, though you do not feel him always, he is nearer to you, and he remembers you. I just want you to hear that, church. Hear that good news right now. God remembers you because he remembers Christ and you're found in him. He loves you. He's never going to forget you. He sees you and he is always faithful until the end. And that's what we're reminded. Each week when we take the communion meal, what we're reminded of in this meal is that God's never forgetting us. We take it every week so that we can be reminded every week that Christ's body was broken for us that his blood was shed for us so that we can be reminded of this good news of the gospel. This is an invitation to the table to eat with God, to be near to him. And so if you're a Christian here today, I want to encourage you. If you're a gospel person, I want to encourage you to receive this meal. If you're placing your, your, your hope in Christ, knowing that he received the flood so that you don't have to. Our Father in heaven, we're so encouraged by what you've done throughout generations past. We're so thankful that you remember us and that you are faithful until the end. And God, we pray that as we take this sacred meal, that we'll be reminded of your gospel, that we'll be encouraged by it, and that our relationship with you will be renewed and we'll be reminded of your remembrance of us. As we remember you, we thank you for remembering us. And we pray for anyone who does not know Christ this morning, that they might come to a saving faith in you, that they might say, I am without a hope if I don't have a righteous one on my side. I've been trying to do this thing by myself, but I need God. God, we pray that they'll come to a salvation in you today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.